Good morning. I'm going to begin this morning by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray with me. Loving Father, the, the letters of Paul to the Corinthian saints are a treasure to your people in every age. We ask you to give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you set before us as we begin this marvelous journey. Because, Father, we, we desire to be uh, children of the living God who are submitted and yielded to you. We desire the power and the wisdom of the living God. And we know that, that your spirit is at work in, in these marvelous writings to impart these great treasures to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We begin a series this morning that, that, Lord willing, will take us through two New Testament books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In an age in which truth is widely considered to be every person's individual construct, and morality is just as widely considered to be an individual matter, we would be hard-pressed to find any more timely and relevant instruction than we find in these two great epistles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. My title for the study of the first of these letters is Christ Crucified, the Power of God and the Wisdom of God. It is in the person and work of the crucified and resurrected Jesus that the power and wisdom of God is given to us. Without that in-person gift, we would be too weak, too, too weak ever to accomplish anything that's truly valuable. And we would be too foolish ever to arrive at anything that is really wise and true. We need to know very, very well the things that Paul has set before us as we travel through these letters. Paul introduces himself in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, as the writer of this first letter. He also introduces a beloved co-worker in that first verse, 
whom he identifies as Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes was very likely Paul's amanuensis uh, for this letter. It's just a big word that means the, the person who actually wrote down the words at Paul's dictation. Now, this may very well be the same Sosthenes who is named in Acts chapter 18 as a leader of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, a man who was dragged out of that synagogue by a group of angry Jews, according to that chapter, and was badly beaten, undoubtedly, because of his association with the Apostle Paul and because of his acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul had been preaching in the synagogues and among the Gentiles in Corinth. And one thing we should not miss in the first verse is that Paul's introduction of Sosthenes follows a, a pattern that's very consistent in his New Testament letters. He always makes it clear that his ministry is a labor of many and that his faithful co-workers are absolutely indispensable to the work that God has filled his hands to do. In chapter 12 of this, of this epistle, we'll see that that way of doing things is foundational to how God designed the church of Jesus to work. Now, that stands in stark contrast to leaders who exalt themselves and who demand that those under their authority exalt them as well. And that contrast will be very important. In, in, in fact, in the very next passage of 1 Corinthians that we'll look at next week, as Paul begins to address the man-exalting factions that were dividing the church at Corinth, not only does Paul make sure we know that, that this book is the result of much more than his, his own individual effort, he also makes it clear that he didn't write this epistle at his own initiative, but at God's initiative. Paul's letters to the churches are not opinion blogs. <laughs> they are scripture breathed out by the Holy Spirit with Paul acting merely as God's agent and messenger. Long before Paul wrote these letters, he had been, as he says in this first verse, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul was not self-appointed. He didn't even volunteer for the job, though he pursued it with steadfast devotion and courage. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul was still named Saul and was a much younger man, the crucified and resurrected Christ blindsided him, pun intended, as Saul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to find some more Christians to arrest and to bring back in chains to the temple at Jerusalem to be put on trial before the same Jewish priestly court that had demanded the crucifixion of Jesus. The young Saul was proud to be a militant enemy of all who called upon the name of Jesus. But that day, on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Jesus gave Saul a heart transplant. <laughs> he gave Paul a heavenly calling and a heavenly commission. He called Paul into union with himself by grace through faith.
See, the essence of Paul's calling is the same as the calling of every believer. Paul actually makes that very clear in another letter in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. He says that we are called by grace, and he says he was called by grace. We are called by the living God into union with Jesus Christ, purely as a gift by his grace through faith in Jesus. Now, along with Paul's calling came an apostolic commission. In the first chapter of another of his letters, again, Galatians, Paul says that God had set him apart even from his mother's womb. <laughs> See, God's plans for Paul started before Paul ever drew his first breath. And then at the right time, which happened to be on that road to Damascus, God called him through his grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son in him so that Paul might preach Jesus among the Gentiles. All of that is in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. That was God's commission for Paul. First and Second Corinthians were written by God's chosen messenger to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. And these two letters were written to the church in an overwhelmingly Gentile city called Corinth. Right, so the writer is Paul. The audience to whom Paul is writing, according to verse 2, is the church of God, which is at Corinth. During his second missionary journey, and I'm going to switch over to a map here. During his second missionary journey, Paul started from Antioch in Syria. He traveled across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And then he crossed the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. And there's some cities here that we should recognize, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Then he came into Greece. And, and after visiting Athens and delivering his powerful sermon at Mars Hill, he traveled to the Greek city of Corinth. Upon hearing directly from God that God had many people in that city, Paul settled there for a year and a half. He also met up with some folks that had a, a common trade with Paul, tent making, and that was Priscilla and Aquila. Upon settling there for a year and a half, Paul then began teaching the Word of God to many people, both in the synagogues and in the streets among the Gentile population, and he saw many people come to faith, even some from among the leaders of the synagogue. Paul likely wrote this letter to the Corinthians from the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor during his third missionary journey. He spent a couple of years in Ephesus at that point, and that's apparently where he was when he, when he wrote these letters and sent them to Corinth. Um, Paul was not writing to everyone in the city of Corinth. He was writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And then he says, verse 2, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 
Now, the words sanctified and saints are from the same Greek root, and that root word means to be holy. And that means to be set apart to God, to be set apart to God, not to be part of the world, not to be part of the things that oppose God, but, but to be separate from those things and devoted to God. Paul is not talking in these first couple of verses about practical day-to-day -day holiness, although that will be very much an issue throughout these letters. The reason that, that I know he's talking instead about positional holiness is because he says that these to whom he is writing have already been sanctified, made holy. And yet he spends the rest of the letter exhorting them to be holy in practice. When I say positional holiness, I'm talking about, about being set apart to God by the work of God and, and God having set these believers apart to himself. It's, that's entirely God's doing. Uh, now, how had these particular people in the city of Corinth become holy, set apart to God? Well, the only way anyone becomes sanctified, and that is, as Paul says, in Christ Jesus, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul's affirming the same thing about the believers in Corinth that he affirms about the believers that he addresses in every one of his epistles. They are saints because God has brought them into union with Jesus purely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The word saints does not refer to super-Christians who get memorialized in stained glass windows and on gold necklaces. The word saints simply means holy ones. And it applies to every person ever saved by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in him. The very important point that we must not miss here is that Paul is writing to believers to the redeemed children of God. That is the case throughout both of his letters to the church at Corinth, just as it is throughout all of the letters of Paul that we find in the New Testament. Now, that's hugely important for us. It might seem like a no-brainer, but it's very important to us if we want to know the relevance and the application of the things that we're going to find in these letters. Because... Both letters include forceful exhortations, rebukes, and even warnings that are directed to Paul's readers. And it would be an easy out for us to conclude that the harshest of those rebukes apply only to unbelievers who had gotten mixed in with the redeemed people of God. But there's no indication at any point in these epistles or in any of Paul's other letters that those exhortations, rebukes, and warnings are directed to anyone other than those that he calls saints, the holy ones of the living God. That doesn't mean that there weren't unbelievers mixed in. It means that that's not who he's talking to in these letters. That's really, really important, beloved. 
Because the church in Paul's day was a whole lot like the church in our day. And the reason that it was is because it was made up of people like you and me. Not super Christians, but struggling Christians. Christians who are doing battle daily against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul is careful to point out to these saints right up front in the second verse of this letter that the things he's writing to them apply not only to the saints in the city of Corinth, but to the church universal. He says that he's, he's presenting these things to the Corinthian believers together, quote, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. This, too, is going to be critically important as we work our way through these letters. We'll see Paul say more than once that the things that he's writing are not limited in application to this one group of Christians in the city of Corinth, but that they apply to all Christians everywhere. And, beloved, that means they apply to us. Those who don't like what they find in these letters vigorously insist sometimes that, that, that the teachings and the exhortations here applied only within a very limited cultural context that never existed outside of first century Corinth. But Paul does away with that nonsense right in the first verses of the book. He reiterates, and, and then he goes on and he reiterates the universal application of his teaching more than once in these letters. The instruction that Paul gives to his church applies in to, to the church of Christ applies in every place and in every age. But while the truths and commands in these letters apply to all Christians, the specific challenges that were faced by the believers who lived in the city of Corinth required Paul to be very forceful with this specific church on certain points. And this is where the powerful relevance of 1st and 2nd Corinthians comes right to the doorstep of Community Bible Chapel in Richardson, Texas. The church at Corinth was a vivid example of what happens when Christians live in a place of great prosperity and in a culture in which people are accustomed to having things go well. The city of Corinth had been laid waste during the, the Roman conquest of Greece about a hundred years before this, but around 44 BC, a Roman emperor named Julius, Julius Caesar, had the world, and I'm sorry, I said a hundred years before this, I mean a hundred years before Caesar changed this, the paradigm. Around 44 BC, Julius Caesar had the worldly smarts to recognize that this was definitely not a place to leave in ruins. And I'm about to show you why. Because in the world of real estate, location is everything, and this was a location like few others in the world. I'm going to switch back to a different map here. This is Google Maps. And this is the same essential layout. We've got on the east, we've got Asia Minor modern-day Turkey. On the west, here's Italy, the gateway to Europe, and in right smack dab in between is Greece. And right in the middle of this map is Corinth. I'm going to drill down a little bit. 
Corinth is right here. Now, Corinth sat on a very narrow neck of land that was known as the Isthmus of Corinth. That Isthmus, that little sliver of land, connected northern Greece with the southern peninsula of Greece known as Peloponnesus. If you're listening to this message rather than watching it, picture the southern part of Greece as a great big island, but not really an island because on the north side of it, it's connected to the mainland of Greece by a, a, a neck of land that's only four miles wide at its narrowest point. Let me pan out a little bit. If you sailed due east from that sliver of land, you'd hit Asia Minor, and if you sailed due west, you'd hit Italy, about the same distance in either direction. It was critical to the economy of the Roman Empire to be able to move goods and services back and forth between Europe and Asia Minor, and Greece was right here in between the gateways to those two, those two regions. And Greece itself was a thriving part of the Roman marketplace. Now here's where it gets really interesting. There were a couple of ways that a merchant ship could transport goods from Asia Minor to Italy or vice versa. And Greece, uh, and, and one of those ways, I should say, was to sail around the southern tip of Peloponnesus. But there was a problem with that. Because in order to do that, those ships had to cross through an, a fairly narrow band of water that was along a path of unobstructed seas that, that spanned about a thousand miles from Tunisia all the way over here to Turkey. And because there were no land barriers along that latitude, the winds picked up ridiculous velocity in this channel between Peloponnesus and Crete. And there were lots of shipwrecks right in here because of, of fierce winds and high waves, especially in certain parts of the year. So that was one way that you could move goods back and forth, but the other way <laughs> was to, to bring your, your ship into either harbor, if you're coming from east to west, to bring it in over here just east of Corinth, and if you're going the other direction, to bring it into harbor here. And, and both, of those, both of those ports were amazingly well shielded from high winds and fierce weather. And so you could, you could bring a ship in there and you could, could just pay to have the, the goods moved over across that four mile band of, of, of land and then picked up on another ship and carried the rest of the way. Does that make sense? Let me come back out of the map for a minute. In reality, some smaller sailing vessels were actually hoisted onto huge carts 
and they were rolled across that four-mile span of land and then set back in the water to finish the trip, sort of like an overland canal. Now, all of this meant that Corinth was in the catbird seat. When Julius Caesar realized the potential of having a Roman-controlled colony in that location, he poured money and people and infrastructure into Corinth, and he quickly turned it into one of the most economically powerful cities in the entire Roman Empire. And needless to say, lots of other people followed the money. <laughs> Anthony Thistleton's commentary points out that before Paul came to the city of Corinth during his second missionary journey, he had never encountered any place quite like this. Quoting another commentator, uh, he says, Corinth had more business than it could comfortably handle. The immense volume of trade was augmented by huge numbers of travelers. Profit came easily to those prepared to work hard, and cutthroat competition ensured that only the committed survived. End quote. And of course, as is the case in, in every place in the world where there is great wealth to be had, the disparity between the haves and the have-nots was huge. Beloved, if idleness is the devil's workshop, affluence is the devil's toolkit. In the middle of the city of Corinth was a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, whom the Romans knew as Venus, the goddess of sexual love and fertility. Stationed at that temple were hundreds, and by some accounts, thousands of temple prostitutes. The sexual enticements encountered in the city of Corinth were so great that many merchants and soldiers squandered their pay to indulge their desires when they were in the city, to the point that many were made destitute. The ancient historian Strabo points out that a saying arose in Rome that said, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. It was a warning. All right, so let's see. Wealth, opportunity, comfort, influence, sexual promiscuity. Does any of that sound like someplace you know? <laughs> notes that the greater Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, with all of its many suburbs, has been the fastest-growing metropolitan area in the United States for more than a decade, with the result that DFW has one of the strongest economies of any metropolitan area in the whole country. Even in the midst of the painful economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic that some in our congregation have experienced firsthand, DFW is still seeing an influx of people moving from other parts of the United States and from other countries. Why? The bottom line is the bottom line, money and opportunity. The local churches in Dallas-Fort Worth are situated in a place and in a circumstance that makes it very easy to take things like provision and security for granted. Most of our problems, our first world problems, 
not third world problems. I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of those who are watching this message or listening to it have never missed a meal that we didn't choose to miss. I know that's true of me. We're accustomed to having no problem finding exactly the products that we desire to buy on well-stocked shelves at several stores, all in easy driving distance, some of which are open 24 hours a day. We're accustomed to being able to pick up ready-cooked food in a fast-moving drive through lane on the way home from work, anytime we want to. We're accustomed to seeing the value of our investments grow over time with relatively little attention from us. If our air conditioning or our internet access goes out for even half a day, we call that a crisis, <laughs> and we expect that people we can easily contact will jump through hoops to get such, such things corrected in very short order. And the opportunities for self-indulgence are absolutely everywhere, even on our phones. The unavoidable truth is that people who are accustomed to an abundance of provision, security, leisure, and comfort tend to find that living lives which are set apart to God is harder, not easier, than if they didn't have all those things. The illusion of well-being crowds out the reality of well-being, and the illusion can look really, really attractive. I point those things out for this reason. Knowing how we are like the Corinthians should help us grasp the relevance of the lessons that we will find in these letters. And what we find in this first letter is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The letter that we know as 1 Corinthians is about how the truth that Paul simply calls the word of the cross dramatically changes the way we think and speak and live every day of our lives compared with those who have not believed or embraced that truth. It's about how the crucified and resurrected Christ defines everything that we call life and well-being. This letter declares clearly and unapologetically that truth is not up for grabs, <laughs> but instead has been revealed and established in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are surrounded today by a, a postmodern relativistic wasteland. Millions of people, especially younger people, find that they have no, no mooring, no compass, no truth that can be trusted. But in this letter, starting in its earliest chapters, God tells us through Paul exactly how we know that which is absolutely, unwaveringly true. Truth which eye has not seen and ear has not, not heard and which has not even entered the heart of man apart from God's revelation of that truth by His Spirit in His Word.
This letter tells us that we know exactly where to find the truth. And it is found in the person and work of the crucified and resurrected Christ who is attested to and witnessed to in both testaments of God's Word. This letter tells us that, that what this world calls wisdom is utter foolishness that leads only to death. This letter tells us that the gospel message by which we have been saved and which we are called to proclaim to this world is not hard to grasp and it is not poorly attested. It is instead imminently clear both in its content and in its proof. This letter tells us that the gospel of the atoning sacrifice and bodily resurrection of Jesus by which men are eternally saved is the subject of the whole Bible. This letter makes it clear, very clear, that theology and practice are inseparable. We'll see that time after time after time as we proceed through, these, through this letter and 2 Corinthians. This letter tells us that the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to every individual believer make, make the faithful service of every believer in the body of Christ indispensable to the ongoing work of Christ in the world. This letter is not politically or culturally correct as the world measures correctness. It unapologetically sets forth a different role for women in the church and in the family than the role that is set forth for men by God's flawless and gracious design. This book tells us why, even in this litigation generation, we never have cause to take one another to court in the community of believers to solve our differences. This book tells us that God takes our observance of the Lord's Supper a whole lot more seriously than many Christians do. It tells us that building up our fellow saints is way more important in the eyes of God than exercising every freedom that God has granted to us as his children. That we are to temper our liberty with godly love for one another. This book exposes the pathetic imitation of love that the world craves and exalts it exposes that, that thing that, that the world calls love as being nothing like genuine love. It dispenses with the moral maze of self-focused, unmet, need-driven lusts. And it sets before us instead the revolutionary reality of love that gives and that serves out of fullness, out of strength. Love that needs not and does not seek its own because the love of God for us has removed all doubt that it is well with our souls now and forever. This book stakes the entire Christian faith on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it declares that the promise of our resurrection in the likeness of his is the engine of our steadfast perseverance in doing good on this earth. In short, beloved, if you want practical, 
you found it. <laughs> but after that quick overflight of some of the profound truths that we'll encounter in this letter, it's important, it's important that we start where Paul starts. And friends, where Paul starts is with assurance. I mentioned early on in this message that the saints in Corinth were a, a pretty messy bunch, like us, and that, that we will therefore encounter many rebukes, corrections, and warnings in Paul's letters to the Corinthian church. I pointed out how the unusual prosperity and comfort that characterized this city made it a lot like the place and the circumstance in which we find ourselves. And that makes these first nine verses all the more critical to understanding the heart of Paul as he writes to the saints in Corinth and to you and me. In verses four through nine of this first chapter, Paul declares without any hesitation or qualification that the people to whom he's writing have every reason to be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not to shrink back from his return, but to wait for it eagerly. They have every reason to anticipate the return of the righteous Savior and Judge of all mankind with joyful confidence that he will himself confirm them to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem surprising considering that the Corinthian church struggled with sins like sexual immorality and materialism and petty divisions and treating the Lord's Supper as an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness, along with many other failures. But, beloved, it is no accident that the first passage in this book is filled not with rebuke or exhortation, but with affirmation and assurance. See, the marvelous thing about rightly placed confidence regarding our standing in the eyes of God, now and forever, is that the very thing that makes that confidence rightly placed is that it's placed not in us, but in Jesus. The confidence that Paul declares regarding the eternal security of these motley Christians in Corinth has nothing to do with them and everything to do with their Savior. That's why in Paul's prayer of thanks that begins in verse 4, it's not the believers in Corinth that he's thankful for. It's the believer's Savior. He's not actually thanking God for what the Christians in Corinth have done. He's thanking God for what God, purely by His grace, has done for and in the Corinthian Christians. <laughs> Listen carefully as I read verses 4 through 9 one more time. This is absolutely essential, beloved. Paul writes, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift 
awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> Paul's not praising the Corinthians. He's praising God. He's thanking God for the grace that he has lavished upon these redeemed people who didn't deserve to be redeemed any more than Paul did. That grace brought them into union with Jesus Christ, into fellowship with Jesus Christ. That grace enriched them in all speech and in all knowledge. That grace confirmed the testimony of God in their hearts. That grace guarantees that they will be presented blameless before the throne of God at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have to jump ahead for just one second to the last two verses of this chapter that we'll look at again later. But those two verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, beautifully confirm this wonderful truth. They say, but by his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not by your doing, by his doing. You're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. <laughs> it's all him. It's all him. Paul intends for his readers to know whose they are and what they have been given. Not to wonder, not to doubt, but to know. Because to know that the boundless, everlasting grace of God in Jesus Christ has been freely given to you through faith in him alone is the very bedrock the very bedrock of godly living to which the rest of this book calls every redeemed child of God. It is against that backdrop, a backdrop of perfect confidence and assurance that Paul then will begin verse 10 with the words, Now I exhort you, brethren, and that's where we'll pick up next time. Stick with us. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that my brothers and sisters are as excited about diving into these two marvelous letters as I am. We long to know personally your power and your wisdom in our lives every day until you bring us into your glorious kingdom so that we may bear together the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world in the power of the Spirit, to the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in His incomparable name that we pray. Amen.